morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, no, this morning we're not in John, but we'll be back there next week. It's uh, been a difficult week and didn't get to continue in John. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at this text in Romans. <clears throat> and I don't know why it says Romans 1 up there, because that's not what we're doing. It's Romans 8. Uh, 18 through 23, I was delirious this week when I put this together. So, uh, <clears throat> But what I want to do is I want to look at Romans 8 and look at uh, Paul's encouragement to that first century church as they were awaiting the arrival of the resurrected body. Now David already read this text, so I'm going to skip through this. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what I want, the text that David read here, Romans 8, the majority view of this text is that Paul is talking about the physical creation. Alright, believers read that and they say, you know, the creation being subject to futility. And they think it's talking about the physical creation. I'm not really sure what all that involves. Rocks, trees, uh, what, what all. But most believers see this talking about a recreation of the earth. They see the earth as under a curse that will be lifted at the return of Christ. N.T. Wright states... The whole creation, sun, moon, sea, sky, birds, animals, plants, is longing for the time when God's people will be revealed as the glorious human agents. You think the the sea is longing? The sky is longing? The moon? How do do these things long? You know, how, how does that happen? I think the problem here with Wright and with many writers is what they fail to see in this passage is the time statement. Let's look at verse 18, but look at it in Young's literal translation where he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory about to be revealed in us. That's a major key in this passage. He says the glory is about to be revealed. It's not in our future. It was in their very near future. And it's 2,000 years past for us. Since this was about to happen when it was written, it must not be talking about a physical renovation of the planet because that hasn't happened. The planet's still the same as it was back then. Now, giving us the the futuristic view of this text, John MacArthur does a good job laying out the futuristic view. It's a rather long quote, but I think he lays it out. He says, God never changes, but this creation is going to change. It's really going to change. There's going to be a glorious restoration. There's going to be a regeneration. And I'm not talking about the new heaven and the new earth. That's after the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a change before that. Jesus says there's coming a regeneration. When it comes, I'm going to be on my throne. And we know it. The prophet said he'd be on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And not only is he going to be on the throne, it's going, he is going to rule the nation of Israel. And, only, and not only is he going to rule the nation of Israel, but the twelve apostles are going to sit on twelve thrones and assist him in judging the twelve tribes. That's the regeneration. That's the promise of the regenerated earth. The kingdom where Christ establishes His throne and reigns. This is the promise of God. One of the features of the millennial kingdom is, of course, 
that these believers are taken to glory, both New Testament believers and Old Testament believers are all taken to glory. They're given glorified bodies and they come back to earth. All right, so all the believers are taken up. You get a glorified body, not really sure what that is. And then you come back to physical earth in a glorified body. All right? To reign with Christ and they've all resurrected, they're all resurrected individuals with a glorified body like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. Alright, so this body is going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. We'll talk about that in a minute here. The restored earth exists for a thousand years after which the thing is totally uncreated and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. That point, all that has been recreated is utterly uncreated. The elements will melt with fervent heat, probably talking about the reversal of the atomic creation that God put into motion six days, and it's all uncreated, and then God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's a good summary of the dispensational view. But again, he, like Wright, misses the time statements. The glory was about to be revealed. Now, if it's about to be revealed to them 2,000 years ago, It can't still be about to be revealed to us if language has any meaning whatsoever. About 2,000 years ago, uh, this was written. Now, look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So people see this as a physical creation. In other words, the trees, the rocks, the sun, the moon, they're all in agony. Which I don't understand that. You ever seen a rock sweat anything? Huh? No. All right. So how is this creation eagerly waiting for what? Well, the word creation here, the majority view here is that Paul's talking about physical creation because you see the word creation. You say, okay, we know what the creation is. So that's what he's talking about. Well, let me ask you something. Is it possible that he's not talking about the physical creation in this verse? The context in this verse leads me to believe that he's talking here about Israel not the creation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Greek word here for creation is kathesis. All right? Kathesis occurs 20 times in the New Testament, and it can be translated either creation or creature. All right? Depending on the context. So you've got to look at the context and try to figure out how is he using this. At times, This is used of physical creation. It's used that way in Romans 1. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. All right? But it is also used of mankind. Let me show you a few verses where this verse, this word, kathesis, is used of human beings, not a physical creation. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all kathesis. Who is he supposed to preach to? Rocks and trees and the sky and the moon? No. People. All right? He's talking about people here. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new kathesis. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are become new. He's a new creation in Christ. Now, that creation, though, is not talking about the physical creation. It's the new creation, the church, the body of Christ. We are no longer in the body of Adam. We are in the body of Christ. Galatians 6, 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new kathesis. Colossians 1.15 And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, kathesis. So this word kathesis does not always mean physical creation. I think that's very easy to prove. It's used of men. 
All right? In Isaiah 43, we see that Israel was God's creation. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, I have redeemed you, I have called you by my name, you are mine. Now he seems to be talking here about the creation of the covenant people Israel. So it's possible that the creation in our text in Romans is referring to the material, not material creation, but the creation of Israel as a people for God. Now, let me make a comment in this text about the word Lord there. You see the word Lord up top in all capitals, L-O-R-D? This is the Hebrew word <coughs> Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew yod vav So every time in your Bible you see that Lord all in caps, behind it is the Hebrew yod vav Alright? This is called the tetragrammaton in the Greek, meaning four letters, the four consonants, Y-H-W-H, which make up the divine name. Now, the written Hebrew language didn't contain vowels. Only consonants were used. The readers had to supply the vowels as they read. Now, in reverence for the divine name, led to the practice of avoiding its use. Now think about that. Reverence led to avoidance. Does that make any sense? They thought that, okay, the name is holy. we got to be careful how we say, yes, it is holy. But in time, they thought it was too holy to even pronounce anymore. You ever heard the ineffable name of God? It means too holy to pronounce? Well, that's man-made. That's what man came up with. And what happened was, so the, instead, when they said the name, they would say Adonai, or they would say Hashem. Shem means name. Ha is the. They would say the name. In other words, the name. We're not going to say the name, but we'll just say the name, the name. You know, so you know who the name is. Or they'd use Adonai. And so what happened when they translated our Bibles following this Hebrew practice, they just took every use of our Lord's name, Yahweh, the sacred name of God, and they just put Lord in there. Yahweh appears almost 7,000 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, not once in the, Hebrew, in the English Bible. And I just think it's sad. I think if, if Yahweh used His name almost 7,000 times that He wanted His name used, He wanted His name known. But it's been covered up. So when you read your Bible and you see that Lord in all caps, don't read Lord. Read Yahweh. Okay? That's what it means. Let's bring the name of God back. You know, when people talk about, you know, Allah, you hear, we're hearing a lot about Allah nowadays. No. Well, Allah just means God. That's what it does mean. So they say, well, you worship God. We were, no, our God is Yahweh. Okay? He is not Allah. Alright? <clears throat> Look at Psalm 113, 1 through 3. It says, praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the setting. Let the name of Yahweh be praised. I mean, the psalmist wanted people to understand that name and know that name. You know, it's really hard to praise His name if you don't know it. Our God's name is Yahweh. We need to be aware of that. We need to bring back the sacred name of God so people understand it. He told us what His name was. He manifests Himself under Yahweh. He wants us to understand. All right, let's go back to Isaiah. 
I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel. So these verses are telling us that Israel was a special creation of God. They were His special people. He gave them a covenant. He entered into a relationship with them. Now, if we look at the 8th chapter of Romans as a whole, it discusses the role of the Spirit in setting believers free from the law to serve God through the indwelling Spirit. And it compares the actions of those indwelt with the Spirit to those who do not have the Spirit. In looking at the overall context, one would have to ask why Paul would interject an allegorical passage about the creation in a chapter that otherwise is devoted to discussing the role of the Spirit in the life of believers and unbelievers. Therefore, the overall context of the chapter suggests that Paul was not talking about the non-rational creation. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says creation... We have to realize he's not referring to the physical cosmos. It's a reference to the remnant of Israel. And then when you understand that, you can understand them groaning and you can understand some of the things that are said about this because it's not an inanimate creation. In referring to the old covenant saints who were under the law, who were in bondage to the corruption of sin death. That's what this is talking about. And he says, now... What I want to do is I want to run through some of these words here and I want to show you the significance of the words he uses and how by looking at these words in context, it makes it very clear what the creation is. The words set free here are from the Greek word eleutherao. And eleutherao means to set at liberty from the dominion of sin. Set at liberty from the dominion of sin. Now, the future passive verb implies that God will do the work of liberation with the context declaring it is a fruit of Yeshua's redemptive work on the cross. Eleutherao is only used seven times in the New Testament. All of the seven uses are in relation to Israel being set free from the bondage of the law. So if he's using a word here that very specifically is connected to Israel, why would he do that if the creation was a physical creation? Now let's look at some of the uses. John 8, 31 and 32. So Yeshua is saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth and the truth will make you eleutherao. It will make you free. We see this word also used In verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The same word is used in Romans 6.18. Having been made free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Eleutherao here is dealing with believing Israelites, trusting, who are trusting in their Messiah. Believing, again, 6.22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is referring to those in Romans 7 who cried out for deliverance from the body of sin and death. In Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. The word free here again Eleutherao. Paul says that they are not to be subject again to the yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery that he's talking about? It's the law. 
All right, the very similar use of low can be seen in Peter's speech at Jerusalem Council that we see in Acts 15.10. He says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither your fathers nor you have been able to bear? They were trying to put the yoke of the law on them and to compel the Gentiles to adopt the Mosaic law as a means of right standing before God was to tempt God by putting the Gentiles under a yoke that the Jews never could live under. It places them under the burden of the commandments that they cannot keep. So it was a yoke. So every use of el is referring to Israel. It never used of the earth being set free from anything. I think this really strengthens the idea that catesis here is a reference to Israel not a reference to a physical creation. Now, the word slavery here in Galatians 5.1 is the same word used in our text in Romans 8.21. You're set free from the slavery to corruption. The word slavery is the Greek word dulea. It is only used five times in the New Testament. And guess what? It's only used of Israel. It's used in Romans 8.15. Our text here, 8.21, it's used in Galatians 5.1, Hebrews 2.15, and it's used in Galatians 4.24. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, do you know what the slavery being talked about here is? There's two covenants. It's referring here to the old here. And he's talking about Mount Sinai bearing children. The children of Mount Sinai are slaves because they're under the law of God. So the slaves are those who are under the law, which is Israelites. Okay? Romans 8.21, he says the slavery to corruption. The word corruption here in our text is from the Greek word thora. It's only used eight times in the New Testament, always dealing with the corruption of sin and the law which only deals with Israel because only Israel was under the law. You're starting to get the connection, right? Look at Peter's use of it. 2 Peter 1.4 David, would you give me a half a cup of coffee, please? <clears throat> For by those he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, corruption here... <clears throat> Thanks, David. I'm not falling asleep. I'm trying to help my throat. <laughs> Paul's talking about Jewish believers here. They've escaped the corruption of the law of sin and death. So Paul is telling us that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now here, speaking of the creation, he uses three words. All right? He uses eleutherao, he uses dulea, and he uses thera. All are tied to Israel, all dealing with the bondage of sin. Now, I got a question for you here. If Paul is talking about physical creation here, why use all these words that are only connected with Israel? Is he trying to confuse us? No, we're already confused. He's trying to straighten us out, okay? 
He's trying to make it very clear in this context what ketesis is. Like I said, ketesis can be used of a physical creation. It can be used of human beings. Obviously, in this context, because every other word he's using, he's connecting it directly to Israel, he wants us to understand he's dealing with Israel in this text. Well, Paul goes on to say that they will be delivered into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, the creation, the remnant of old covenant Israel, will share the same freedom of glory as the children of God. This is not the physical creation sharing glory of the children, but the believers of the old covenant. The writer of Hebrews, I think, makes this clear. He says, and these died in faith. Without receiving the promise. He's talking about old covenant believers. Alright? But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So believing old covenant Israel, believing old covenant Israel, that's got to understand that, the remnant we're talking about, they died in faith, hoping for a better resurrection. Hebrews 11.35 says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, God did not give Old Covenant Israel deliverance in advance of the New Covenant saints. All right, I think we understand that. But look at the text in Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. He says, all these, having gained approval through their faith, talking about the Old Covenant saints, the remnant of Israel, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They got the promises, but they didn't receive the promise, the fulfillment of those promises, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So God provided something better for us, new covenant saints, so that apart from us, new covenant saints, they, old covenant saints, would not be made perfect. The text says they did not receive what was promised. What was promised? Well, prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, he's speaking here about the resurrection. The resurrection was promised, but they didn't receive it. It was a future hope. It wasn't a present possession. The promise that they received was eternal life, which was resurrection life in the presence of Christ Yeshua, but they hadn't received it yet. They hoped for it. He says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Perfection here consists in resurrection and being given life in the presence of God. It's receiving their eternal inheritance. The old covenant saints did not receive eternal life. They did not receive resurrection until the church was perfected in A.D. 70 at the return of Christ. Nobody before that entered the presence of God. So the creation, the old covenant believers, received what was promised right along with the children of God. The creation received eternal life. They were resurrected in the presence of God along with the new covenant believers. Notice what else Paul says about creation here. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. How does the physical creation do that? You ever seen the physical creation groaning? You ever seen the dirt just so sorry about things? And rocks and trees just, you know, really groaning about that. And suffering pains of childbirth. The whole creation groans. Listen, 
This makes sense if he's referring to the righteous remnant of Israel. Creation here cannot be the physical earth. How do they groan? Especially when we look at the very next verse. He says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. I mean, in verse 22, he's saying the whole creation groans. And he says, even we groan. And the metaphor groaning of verse 22 from the same word, is that what, I mean, so people would say, well, verse 22, well, that's just metaphorical. You know, the earth is metaphorically groaning. Well, then is the next verse, is it still metaphorical? Is this, are they, are the new covenant saints groaning or is this just metaphorical too? And what kind of hermeneutic is that? You got metaphorical and then literal right in the same next two verses. It just doesn't make any sense. He says, the whole creation suffers the pains of childbirth. Now, all these words, suffers the pain of childbirth, this sentence basically is from a Greek word, sunodino. And it means to suffer in pain together. The Jews believed that just before the manifestation of the Messianic kingdom, Israel would go through a period of intense suffering. William Barclay says this, Time was divided by Jews into two great periods, this present age and the age to come. All right. Uh, quoting Barclay, let me just say, and I usually say this when I quote Barclay, okay, Barclay was a neo-Orthodox, okay, so you got to take what he says with a grain of salt. He was an excellent historian, though, okay? So for history, he's great. For doctrine, not so much, okay? He doesn't believe in any of the miracles of Christ, um, but he says the time was divided into the present age and the age to come. The present age is wholly bad beyond all hope of human reformation. It can be mended only by the direct intervention of God. Yes, that's correct. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come, will arrive. But in between the two ages, there will come the day of the Lord, which will be a time of terrible, <laughs> fearful upheaval like the birth pains of a new age. Now, the phrase in our text, pains of childbirth, is an image that sometimes is used in Scripture to simply express great pain. But it's often used of women in the pain of childbirth. So somehow God realized that women have a lot difficult time in childbirth. There's pains there. And so he connected this pain. But the imagery became known as the messianic birth pains. And what it pictured, it pictured creation being brought forth into a new existence. And again, creation here is the remnant of Israel, Old Covenant Israel. They're being brought forth into a new existence through birth. But because of birth, there's pains in this birth. The process of birth would be finalized with the coming of Messiah. Isaiah 26 talks about this. But so also does Micah 4. It says, Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. And writhe and labor and give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. So he's talking about these pains that are coming forth. And then he goes on to say, For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. There will be a redemption, but it's after a time of suffering. So again, we see that it is Israel who is in the labor pains. All these terms that Paul used were connected with Israel. Israel is the creation, the ketesis. Birth pains is used almost as a special term for the birth pains of Messiah. It speaks of a period of distress 
preceding the return of Christ in AD 70, which we know as the Great Tribulation. Its use here seems to be expressly chosen to denote birth pains of a new world. The new is coming, but it's going to be a painful process bringing it in. Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, you understand when you read this today, you're sitting there reading Romans and you say, until now. That doesn't mean until now. Okay? Because Paul said until now 2,000 years ago, until now is not till now anymore. Okay? It's till then. Alright? It's not our now. It's the now of the first century. He goes on to say in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We ourselves, this is the New Testament saints, Paul and the Roman believers, and Paul says that they have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, it's likely that this expression here, of the Spirit, is an appositional genitive. You know what that means, right? So in English it would be, which is the Spirit. Okay? The first fruits, which is the Spirit. As we see earlier in chapter 8, the Spirit was given those believers as a pledge. As an erabon, in other words, an engagement ring, a down payment. God said, I'm giving you a down payment to you saints until the fullness comes in. It's a part of a purchase money. It's property given in advance to secure the rest. It's an earnest or a guarantee. They were given the Spirit as a guarantee that they would receive eternal life. Now, Yahweh commanded the Israelites to present a portion of their harvest that ripened first as an offering to him in Exodus 23. This offering acknowledged that the whole harvest was in reality from him. It was his. It was an offering that the Israelites made in faith, confident that the rest of the harvest would follow. And similarly, God's gift of the Spirit to the first century believers is his pledge that he's going to complete the promise of salvation. The first century had that in promise, but they had the Spirit as a guarantee that it would be fulfilled. John Piper writes this, Because of Christ's purchase redemption, believers already have received the Holy Spirit. This is like a down payment of our full redemption. But it is only the first fruits, a foretaste. Our salvation is not finished. It has only begun. We are saved by hope. See, so Piper today, still waiting for the completion of salvation. All right? And his mistake here is he sees us still living in the days that Paul wrote this, in the transition period. He sees us all still waiting for the adoption that was about to happen 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. And so 2,000 years later, he's still waiting. He doesn't see anything as happening in between there. And see, it doesn't seem to bother most of these guys that these time statements always speak of something very close. And yet Paul wrote that and he told those people this is going to happen soon. It's at the verge. It's really near. And they're like, yep. And 2,000 years, we're repeating the same thing. And no one's scratching their head saying, hmm, what's wrong here? If something was soon 2,000 years ago, 
is not soon any longer. Okay? And if you think it is, you don't understand language. Or the word soon doesn't mean anything. So when he told them in the first century it was soon, it means nothing. Because soon is a very flexible word, obviously. John MacArthur writes this. We have possession of the past elements of salvation, the present elements of salvation, but not yet the future element. And see, that's what most theologians today will tell you. Salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. And we don't have complete salvation, they'll tell you. We're looking for its future aspect because this is what you see in the Scripture. But they again, they don't realize that what was promised to come was promised to come very quickly. So MacArthur says this, all right, we don't have the future, and then he quotes this to back up his view, all right? You got to use scripture to back up what you believe, right? Okay, he says this. Do this, knowing the time, which MacArthur doesn't know. He doesn't know what time it is. Knowing the time, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now. Now, Paul's now. Now salvation is near to us, Paul and the first century Roman believers, than when we believed. It's nearer now. And see, MacArthur quotes that, and it's, yep, it's nearer now to him too. The now was the first century. Listen, our salvation is not near. Our salvation is here. Okay? And the saddest thing in the world is to look and hope for something you already have. Supposed to enjoy what you have, not hope for it. Salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century believers because until the Lord returned, bringing back, completing redemption in AD 70 was a hope. They looked for its soon arrival. But notice what Paul says in the very next verse after this. Okay? He says, The night is almost gone and the day is near. See, he equates their salvation with the day, which is referring to the new covenant. The night is the old covenant, and the night is almost gone. The writer of Hebrews told us that. It's fading away. It's vanishing. 2,000 years ago, it was vanishing. It is gone now. It was right about to pass away. Paul says those first century saints We're groaning. He says, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for this to happen. This is the Greek word stenadzo, which is the same word that's used by Paul in this passage. For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. What passage is this? Anybody? I didn't put the reference up there. Because I want to know where, where is this? Nobody knows? This is, this is such a... This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we... See, we will not be found naked, he says, for indeed we will be in this tent we groan, being burdened because we... We do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The context of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, he's talking about the two covenants again, contrasting the covenants. And in that old covenant, they groaned, they longed to be out of that covenant and be in the glories of the new covenant. They're groaning right along with old covenant creation, 
Israel, they were groaning under the persecution for the cause of Christ. It says, and they were waiting eagerly. Now, this is the Greek word apekdekomai. It's a composite word, and it speaks of an attitude of intense yearning and eager waiting for the coming of the Lord. So they're just, it's basically, they're on their tiptoes waiting. You know, it's going to be here any second. You ever been in that kind of an expectation? You were waiting, longing for something you just had to have, or waiting for someone to return, and you're just looking. You got this on your tiptoes, stretching out your neck, waiting for it to come. This was their anticipation. This Greek word is used three times in this text in Romans. It's used in verse 19, it says, The creation waits eagerly. Jews in verse 25, first century saints wait eagerly. Their wait would soon be over. But they knew it was soon, so they're anxiously looking. Paul says they were waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, if you want to see the connection of adoption with Israel, all you have to do is jump over to the next chapter real quick. Romans 9.4. He says, who are Israelites? Watch. To whom belongs the adoption as sons? Israel were adopted. The adoption belonged to Israel. And here's the thing. The new true Israel, the church, was now receiving that adoption. Because they were the new Israel. They were fulfillment of Israel. Paul says our adoption as sons, that is the redemption of our body. See, the full manifestation of the adoption is identical with the redemption of the body. Now, this is the first time redemption is mentioned since in Romans since 324. Redemption reminds us of the Exodus theme that runs all through this passage here. But they're waiting for what? The redemption of the body. Now, if you went and talked to most Christians today, they would tell you they're waiting for this today. The first century saints were eagerly, anxiously waiting for its soon arrival. I'm tired of being on my tiptoes. 2,000 years waiting, looking, when's it happen? The Christians today are still waiting for the redemption of the body. Yeah, I can't wait till I get my new body. I'm going to get a redeemed body. Listen, the redemption of the body here is referring to resurrection. Tom Constable writes, the redemption of our bodies is the resurrection. S.L. Johnson writes, We groan waiting for this adoption that is the redemption of our body, the resurrection. Now, Johnson is a concurrent writer, or was, recently passed away, but he says, we groan. See, he's still groaning with those first century saints. He's been waiting 2,000 years like the rest of them. All commentators that I've read say that the redemption of the body is the resurrection. And I agree with them. It's talking about the resurrection. But I disagree with them that it's talking about a physical, bodily resurrection. That's what they're looking for. MacArthur writes this. We are waiting not for the redemption of our souls. That has already been done. Well, not really. Because, you know, MacArthur still has a future aspect of it, right? Unless maybe he's saying the future aspect of salvation is getting your new body. He says, we're waiting for the redemption of our body. He says, I want a new body. I want to get rid of this fallen flesh with its tendencies toward disease, death, and sin. I want to get a new body, and it will be like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. So He wants a new body, all right? S.L. Johnson writes this, There is a struggle then for the Christian as long as he is in the flesh, until the resurrection of the body. Then we shall receive a body like our glorious, 
our Lord's own glorious body. Now, both of these guys so far have said, we're getting a body like Jesus' resurrection body, right? Hang on to that. We're going to talk about that. Piper writes this. I love Piper's quotation, all right? This is the promise of the redeemed body when glory replaces groaning. The promise has at least three parts. All pain, disease, and deformity and disability will be gone. All right, so Piper says, when we get this new body, no more deformities. All right, all sin, which is so often takes the body for its base of operation, will be gone. All this is not because we'll get rid of our bodies, but because in a mysterious and wonderful spiritual way, we'll have new body and glorious bodies, which are capable of touch and smell and taste and hear and seeing. That sounds like the one I got right now. I can do those things. All right. I love this. Watch this. He says, you'll have the best body imaginable. There will be playing and climbing and swimming and running and jumping and swimming and skating and roller skating and skateboarding and biking and hiking and bouncing and tumbling and hopping. And whatever makes you happy, you can do in your new body. All right. Seriously, where does he use scripture to support any of this stuff? Okay. And they all say we're going to have a body like Yeshua's resurrection body, right? But did, remember, Piper said, it's not going to have any deformities. When Yeshua came out of the grave, how did he prove who he was to his disciples? What did he say to Thomas? Put your hands in the nail print. What? It, yeah, feel, feel this hole in my... Wait a minute, that's not a resurrection body, according to these guys. It's not supposed to have deformities. What's that about? The body that came out of the grave of Yeshua was the same body that went in the grave. Okay? Human body. Still had the scars. Still, you know, it wasn't about that. Alright? The traditional view, the view held by most of the church is this. When a believer dies, their body goes into the grave. Their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. They're in this disembodied state and they're awaiting the resurrection at the end time. At the resurrection at the end time, they're going to get themselves a new body. At the end of the time, when the Lord returns, He resurrects all the decayed bodies. You know, I don't care how long you've been dead and where your molecules have gone. He puts all this stuff back together, pulls them all back together, and then on your way up, He changes those physical bodies into spiritual, immortal bodies like Christ. That's basically what the church teaches about the resurrection. But is that what the Bible teaches? I was was confused about, He takes us out of the grave, puts all this back together, and on the way up, changes us. Seems like a lot of work for, you know. What's interesting to note, (coughs) excuse me, the Bible never uses the term resurrected body. It never uses the term resurrection of the body. It never uses the term physical resurrection. That may surprise you because the church uses those terms quite often, but the Bible never does. See, the phrases that the Bible uses are resurrection of the dead and resurrection from the dead. So in order to understand resurrection, we have to understand death. Resurrection is resurrection from the dead. And the death that we are resurrected from is the death that came as a result of Adam. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by a man came death. That's where the problem came, right? Adam came, brought a problem, death. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So whatever Adam messed up, Christ fixed, okay? 
Adam brought spiritual death. Adam brought separation from God. And so by Yeshua came the resurrection of the dead. Not physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection bringing man back into the presence of God. The Bible nowhere teaches a physical resurrection. Now, if you know your Bibles, you might be thinking, well, didn't Job say something about a physical resurrection? Didn't Job say, in my flesh, I will see God? Well, let's look at the text, Job 19, 26, and 27. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. See, Job looked for the fulfillment of the promise of resurrection. And many see this verse in Job as promising a physical resurrection. And the only problem with that is, that's a bad translation. Well, why is it a bad translation? Because that's not what the original Hebrew brings out. All right, The original Hebrew doesn't say, from my flesh. It says, apart from my flesh. Is that a little different, you think? <clears throat> well, why'd they, why'd they translate it like that? Every translator has bias. Every translator has a belief when they go in it. So when they're translating, they're saying, nah, I can't mean that. It must mean this. You know, and you can't help that. That's people. We all have those biases. All right? If this is translated correctly, it means the exact opposite. Kyle and Delich, you ever heard of Kyle and Delich? They've got a tremendous set of commentaries on the Old Testament. They're Hebrew scholars. They translate verse 26 this way. And after my skin, thus torn to pieces, and without my flesh, shall I behold Allah. Without my flesh. I, and that's what the Hebrews said, ek, apart from my flesh. Now, in their commentary on verse, on verse 26 here, Kyle and Delich write this. We cannot in this speech find that the hope of a bodily recovery is expressed. In other words, they're like, we're sorry. It's just not there. Okay? So you can't use that one. All right. So the Bible doesn't teach a physical resurrection, but it does tell us about the time of the resurrection. All right. And that's really important. The scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the old covenant age. Over and over, the scriptures tell us this. Daniel 12, 13. As for you, go your way to the end. Then you shall enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. After Lazarus died, what did his sister say? We know he'll raise at the last day. At the end of the day. They understood this, okay? The resurrection happened at the end of the age. Not the end of the world. At the end of the Jewish age. The old covenant age. We know this happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. That brought to an end that age. Disciples understood the fall of the temple. The destruction of the city meant the end of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new age. Now notice what Paul says about the resurrection. And again, this is Young's literal because Young's brings out the tenses. Having hope towards God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again from the dead, both of righteous and unrighteous. So Paul's preaching here, and he says, there's about to be a resurrection. Now, in the 
New American Standard, it says, there shall certainly be a resurrection. That sounds a lot different, doesn't it? There shall certainly be, and there is about to be. Well, don't those a little, are a little bit different to you? All right. But see, the Greek here is, the verb is mellow. It's in the present active indicative. And when the present active indicative is combined with the infinitive, it consistently is translated about to be. So Paul's preaching to this first century audience, and he tells them, there's about to be a resurrection. He meant 2,000 years later. No, he didn't. About to be. It was on the verge of happening. There's about to be a resurrection. So listen, if the timing of the resurrection was soon, what does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? It must be spiritual. Because time defines nature. If it has happened, then it's not physical people coming out of the grave. He says, we're looking forward the redemption of our body. Now, that doesn't say our bodies. If it was individual bodies being resurrected. See, the body here is not individual physical bodies. The hour is plural. Body is singular. So what's he talking about? Our body. We only got one body. Right. This is referring to the corporate body of Christ. The new and the living temple. So some translations have bodies here, such as the NIV. One of the reasons I don't like NIV. It's nearly inspired. It's a nearly inspired version. Okay. It says bodies. The redemption of our bodies. And that just fuels into the idea that... And see, that's wrong because that's not what the Greek has. Body is singular. Paul says body, not bodies. N.T. Wright wrote this. Paul uses the singular body rather than the expected, see he expected, plural, as he did in 11. In 11 he used a plural. But there seems to be no particular significance to this change. In other words, N.T. Wright says, yes, the Greek says it's a singular, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything. What? In verse 11, he used plural because he meant plural. Here he uses a singular because he's trying to say it's a singular body. And so right is wrong. Alright? Paul and the Holy Spirit used the singular because that's what they meant. It's referring to the body of Christ, not your individual, you know, little body. There's a, the resurrection was taking place was the body of Christ was being resurrected. At the parousia. This is the eschatological redemption that Paul cried out for in Romans 7, 24. When Paul cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The old covenant body, I need to be delivered from this body. It's a body of death. And this is all those who have trusted in Christ being brought into the presence of God. The living tabernacle. This is the fullness of salvation. This is eternal life. And this all happened 2,000 years ago. And if you deal with the language and deal with the context, it's hard to come up with most people say it is today. If you just deal with the time statements, what's soon to them can't be soon to you. That's not a real complicated, you know, idea. It should be understood. All right? The redemption of our body. This text in Romans, 
18 through 23 has nothing to do with physical creation. You know, so many people today, physical creation is just waiting. It's so excited about us. Physical creation doesn't do anything. It's just there. It's a rock. It's dirt. It just lays there and doesn't do anything. All right? It's not excited about anything. This is talking about the fullness of salvation that happened at the end of that old covenant. Our body is the body of Christ and it's been redeemed. And believers, we're not in that period. And the problem is so many writers, they don't know what time it is. Okay? And so if you don't know what time it is, you're going to really get confused. In the transition period, things were very different than they are now. If you want to put yourself in the transition period, you, all kinds of complications come about. you got to understand the time statements, and you move on, and you understand what happened. We now have salvation in its fullness. The redemption of the... We're no longer groaning. There's no longer a eagerly waiting for adoption. We've been adopted. The body has been redeemed, and we have salvation in its very fullest form, and we're not waiting for anything from the Lord. We're complete in Christ. We stand absolutely complete, a finished work in Him. We stand in relationship to Him that we commune with God. He's not behind a veil anymore. Okay? That is done away and we have face-to-face fellowship with the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, I pray that uh, You would give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that people would not believe what I'm saying because I'm saying it, but they would look at this, they would study this, they would dig for themselves and find out if these things are so. Lord, this text seems to so clearly, in the Greek, demonstrate that Paul is talking about Israel. They're the kathesis. He uses all these verbs that refer only to Israel, trying to make it very clear. And yet we simply just read across it in English and continue to be lost. Lord, give us a heart of the Bereans that we might be willing to dig, to study, to learn the truth of your word. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Amen.